Welcome to your number one source of information on women's pelvic health. On this podcast, you will hear from medical experts, pelvic health professionals, holistic healers, and patients themselves in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about regaining and maintaining your pelvic health and becoming your own best advocate for your pelvic floor, the most vital part of our bodies as women. All of the conversations are intimate, raw, and unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. Today, I am here with Dr. Troy Robin Halparn. She is one of the first trained female board-certified OBGYNs in the United States in cosmetic gynecology. She has appeared on CNN, Dr. Drew, and Discovery Health, and has been interviewed by The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and many more platforms and publications. And today we are going to focus on the topics of labiaplasty and radiofrequency. Dr. Halparn came all the way from Texas, so thank you for being here and for the work you do and for being willing to share all of this information. Thank you very much for having me. I want to say first that you've done a great service to women by opening up a platform for talking about intimate issues that aren't regularly discussed. And as an educator of women like yourself, Mm -hmm. I also share that same passion for educating women about issues that aren't discussed, like painful sex, extra skin that gets in the way, the impact of childbirth on a woman's sexual function, and things of that nature. It's amazing what you do, and I've learned so much just from talking to you prior to this conversation, so I'm excited to learn even more and for everyone else listening to have a better understanding of what you do and what is available for them um, if they have any issues that you know are related to what we're going to talk about today. But I also first wanted to quickly say that Um, The goal of every episode on this podcast is to just have an open conversation about stigmatized topics in the women's health space, really in order to increase awareness and education so that women have the knowledge and the power that they need to navigate their health challenges and to make the best decisions for themselves. And so this is really just about providing women with the highest quality content and having the best medical providers and practitioners on here like yourself. So um, I'm excited to have you here today. Thank you. Can you first tell us a little bit more about what you do? Yes. And your practice in Texas. So, I mean, I'm sure you have people come from all over the world, but what do you what do you specialize in? Well, I'm an OBGYN by Mm -hmm. training. And after 12 years of doing both deliveries and routine GYN care, I realized there was a niche that was not being met and that women had issues that really weren't being adequately addressed or even discussed. And so I went and started getting training and more education about sexual function problems that insurance wasn't covering. And while I was learning about that, I was introduced to labiaplasty and hymenoplasty and clitoral hood reduction and labia majora issues. So it broadened my horizons quite a bit because these were things I was not taught in residency. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big problems is that when women are wanting information from doctors and they're not get the doctors themselves don't have the information to help the women make the best choices. So I'm here to help enlighten and to just provide more information to help women make better choices and to ask their doctors better questions. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about most gynecologists that they gynecologists are amazing but they don't a lot of them don't know as much about pelvic pain in younger women than you know than than the prevalence of the problem itself so a lot of the times i mean i had found myself for a while going from one obgyn to another and they had all told me that only women have pelvic floor dysfunction after giving birth and that's as you know not the case so it is really interesting how a lot isn't taught in residency. 
Absolutely, and even just the comfort level of physicians. I mean, we're supposed to be able to talk about female sexual health, and mm -hmm. that encompasses a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's some physicians who, you know, they never want to discuss labiaplasty because that's not something that they were exposed to. Can you explain what a labiaplasty is and why someone would get one? Absolutely. So let's start with how do labial issues become issues. So when women, when girls go through puberty, estrogen stimulates the breasts to grow and the inner lips to grow. So suddenly the girl's body is changing where they suddenly have skin sticking out, protruding beyond the outer hair covered lips. And now it's getting uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to sit on. It may cause problems with keeping clean with their periods or moving their bowels. Their clothes may not fit comfortably anymore. The seams will start to chafe or rub or irritate or pinch or pull. Um, they may find themselves feeling like they have bulkiness in their underwear and start to feel self-conscious. And they may notice that the other girls in the locker room may not have the same amount of skin as they do and it can start the development of body dysmorphic issues, body image problems, because now they don't feel normal. They feel like something's wrong with them. And then participation in normal activities and exercise. Phys ed may become more difficult, causing irritation, chronic sitting, um, walking, they can start to rub. And so suddenly, a body part that wasn't a problem before is becoming a problem. And there's nobody for young ladies to talk to about, because pediatricians don't counsel the moms of preteen girls, because they're not educated about how the labia can affect a young woman mm. and OBGYNs don't ask the perfect time is during a speculum exam when they're doing an annual and they insert it for the pap smear and they have to move the labia out of the way and the perfect question to ask is does this tissue bother you or get in the way but part of the problem is insurance driven practices doctors don't have the time to give women and they don't understand the issue so they brush it off and they'll say you're fine or why would you want to do that and their judgment comes into play and they're not listening to the women who are saying something isn't working the way it's supposed to. There's also a huge misperception that this is about looks, cosmetic, that they just don't like the way it looks and that's really a very small number at least in my practice in Texas. The majority of women come for comfort and functional issues. And yes, appearance is a concern because chronic irritation over time can make them thicker, darker, and stick out more. Mm -hmm. So what may not have started out to be an aesthetic problem can then become an aesthetic problem. And even if it's just an aesthetic problem, that is completely up to the owner of their body if they don't like how something looks and they know something can be done to improve it. But labiaplasty has been labeled a cosmetic surgery by insurance companies. So that's also problematic because the insurance contracted physicians aren't trained in labiaplasty. Mm -hmm. And that puts women between a rock and a hard place. So what is labiaplasty? Labiaplasty is a reduction of the excess skin that's sticking out. And there's two different ways to do it. You can just trim the edge, which creates new pinker edges within the labia majora, or they can do what's called an edge preserving procedure for women that like the look of their labia, but just want them shorter. And those have a slightly higher complication rate. Those are called the wedge procedures. And there's certain ones we don't recommend because they cut the labia in a horizontal fashion and the labia are a vertical organ. And so we wanna make sure that whoever is going to to be operating on a young woman or an older woman has the experience to know how to best do the procedure. And you want to go to someone who knows how to do both kinds of procedures because if one messes up, you have the other as a backup. Mm -hmm. Okay, the other thing is women who have larger labia may also have extra rolls or redundant folds of skin around their clitoral hood. And that can cause hygiene issues, access issues, as well as symmetry if it's only a roll on one side or it's dark on one side and not the other. And so there can also be aesthetic, but nobody talks about the fact that the clitoral hood can be a problem for women or they can have too much in the middle causing access issues. Or even some women can get lichen sclerosis, which is a dermatologic condition that can cause the clitoris to become matted down and buried and inaccessible and that can affect orgasm. So this is a fixable condition, it is treatable, um, but women don't know that they can do something about it. And many women aren't even looking down there to see that, oh, is there something not right? Because they've just never were taught about what is normal anatomy. So, so the labia are normal 
part of our body. Their size ranges from almost none to very large. Just like with breasts, women can be flat-chested, have pendulous breasts, or one bigger than the other. It's the same with labial development. It's just with large breasts, it's easy to see why someone might want a breast reduction, because you can see the straps of the bra cutting into their arms, and their shoulders are becoming rounded. And you can understand and visually see that their physical abilities are limited due to the size of their breasts. You can't see that with the labia. They're hidden, so you can't judge and say whether somebody has labia that they should or shouldn't have reduced, okay? Understanding that a body part can prevent you from living a spontaneous life, which is what this does, you know, is really helpful. And if we could do a better job educating women about the changes that their bodies go through, some of them can be reassured that their labia are normal for them, and as long as they don't mind their size, then they don't need to have surgery. There's many women who embrace their bodies for what they are, but if it hurts, if it's causing irritation, or if it's causing social problems for relationships because they don't want to share their bodies or they've had partners make negative comments, then sometimes a therapist is necessary to help work through self-esteem and self-confidence issues. And sometimes the non-invasive things don't help. Tucking the tissue up, using Vaseline or ointments, avoiding wearing certain clothes, avoiding doing certain activities. Listen, if it hurts during sex because it gets pulled in and out, now a woman's sex life is impacted and then she's choosing to abstain because it's painful. So this can affect many levels of a woman's function. And labiaplasty to me is like cutting a ball and chain off their ankle. It is freeing. Mm -hmm. They can move about the cabin and not have a body part on the back of their mind all the time that's weighing them down. And that's the best visual I can give you because these women, the day of their surgery, they're suddenly more comfortable in their own skin. They're sitting, on, they're sitting on a surgical site, but now they're not sitting on skin that's irritating anymore and they actually are more comfortable the day of their surgery than they were living with their bodies before that. Mm -hmm. But you also want to make sure if you're going to have a labiaplasty, get more than one opinion. Make sure you're seeing somebody who's done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, see before and after pictures, ask questions about how they address complications, because many doctors aren't always available or accessible after surgery. And some doctors don't give good pre and post-op instructions. I'm somewhat OCD about that because mm -hmm. I don't want any surprises. So if a woman comes to me for care, they get 20 pages of before and after instructions. They sign off on, they get copies of. I give a supply bag of post-op supplies to help keep you more comfortable during the week after surgery. And labiaplasty recovery is very quick. They heal by four weeks. Wow! It's a day to recover. You can be up and about, moving around. It's not a bed-bound surgery. Mm -hmm. Actually, women feel really good afterwards. And I have to say, hold back. Don't be doing things that you've been waiting to do for years until you're healed because you've made an investment and you want to heal and not hurt yourself. But it's a very exciting surgery and I'm very passionate about offering it to women because a lot of doctors don't have the conversations, don't provide the education to help women make the best choices. So I, like you, believe in empowering women with knowledge to make the best choices. And with your bottom, you certainly want to make a good choice and, you know, it's traumatic to have to be disfigured by a labiaplasty and then have to go back and find someone else to fix it. Mm -hmm. And so if that can be avoided, I mean, I think that's the best thing we can do for women is do the job right the first time. But there are eight categories of labial concern. Appearance is one of the eight. I've identified over 20 different reasons women come for labiaplasty and only three out of those are appearance related. Mm -hmm. The appearance is the length, the asymmetry or the unevenness and the color. But then we have the hygiene issues, the activities, the exercise, the clothing. Um, some get recurrent urinary tract infections or bacterial vaginosis or yeast infections because of the trapping of the moisture from mm -hmm. the labial, the lips. Um, so, and then there's intercourse, pain with sex, as well as the huge emotional and psychological impact of just feeling like you're not normal or something's wrong with you and why are you different and feelings of embarrassment, um, you know, not wanting to share your body and being frustrated or hopeless, feeling hopeless or even depressed because you can't find someone to help you. When you have doctors that say you're fine, you're normal and why would you want to do that, you know? 
no, normal anatomy, anatomy is anatomy. My main question is, how is it working for you? Mm -hmm. Not what the size is. And as a matter of fact, in the literature, and I've read over 130 articles, there is no consensus on what is considered hypertrophic labia minora. Some, some of the papers say more than three centimeters, some say more than four, some say three to five. Some look at the inner lips relative to the outer lips. So there's a lot of different classification systems and there is no one, one agreement. Nobody's agreed on what the number is that one should have surgery. And I don't think it should be a number. I think it's relative to your anatomy. For a woman that has fuller majora, the outer lips, small labia will be hidden. For somebody that has very flat majora, small labia might protrude and be a problem. So it's not the size per se, but how it's working for, your, for you, mm -hmm. for the owners. So that's my approach when someone comes to me with issues. Evaluate the whole person. When somebody comes to me, they're not just a vagina. I make sure their hormones are good. I make sure their relationships are good. There's no abuse or coercion, and they're doing this for themselves. And I make sure they have all of the information about, we discuss all the risks and complications. I make sure all the questions are answered. I have a book online called Beneath Your Pink Perfect, everything you've ever wanted to know about labiaplasty but didn't know to ask. It's on Amazon, it's $8. It's not out there to make money, it's out there to educate women who know there's something not right, but who don't know what's going on, what questions to ask, how to find help, what the options are. And there's a little chapter called Doctor, Are You Listening? Because I've had many women tell me when they've approached their physicians that they've really been downplayed and not heard. And I had a very obese woman come to me whose labia were huge, preventing her from even walking and being comfortable every single day. And she brought it up to her internist and her internist said to her, you have more important things to worry about about, like diabetes and hypertension, and I just wanted to cry. She didn't bring it up for another five years to another doctor because she just felt like she had just been so put down mm -hmm. and like it was it, there was nothing wrong with her and it was in her head. And this is not in her head. And when she finally came to me and we did her labiaplasty, she was able to lose weight, she was able to exercise. She made me a beautiful diorama box that I have on my wall that helped, that she made while, to help herself while she was healing. And it's beautiful, it's got a, a donut for the donut cushion you sit on and it's got a butterfly and she said only, only butterfly should have wings, you know, not women with labia. Mm -hmm. And just a beautiful piece of art that helped her heal that is very close to my heart because I know how much it changed her life. And to me, that's what drives me. That's why I do what I do, because it is life-changing surgery. And nobody should be told they have to live with a body that isn't working for them the way they want. So interesting. This translates perfect into the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is if someone feels that this surgery is something that they want to do, what are some questions that they could ask a doctor or surgeon um, in order to make sure that they're going to a surgeon who's qualified to do these procedures? Okay, well the surgeons that generally have labiaplasty training include plastic surgeons, some urogynecologists, and some OBGYNs, but it's really very specific to them pursuing additional training. Mm -hmm. I mean, a plastic surgeon is not trained in pelvic surgery. Right. So my, my thinking is a gynecologist would be the perfect person to be trained in labiaplasty. But because our, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is not including this knowledge in residency training. I am trying to get it into the residency programs and it's a very difficult thing to be up against a big political machine. So one thing that I have been offered was an opportunity to educate my colleagues. And uh, I went to two annual clinical meetings in 2009 and 2014 and presented data on labiaplasty. And they approached me and asked if I would create an online e-module on the labia minora and labia minora labiaplasty procedures to educate my peers. And so that's a 110 PowerPoint presentation. It only costs $70 if physicians or other certified people want to go online and order this and learn and it's basic information and it's seven continuing medical education units which is a 
great deal. 90 bucks for seven units is wonderful. But it's the knowledge that's contained in there, which is basic information that they should have been exposed to and unfortunately haven't been yet. And I'm hoping that this information will eventually be included in residency programs and they'll actually start including the surgery. I mean, if you can do a hysterectomy and you can do a tubal ligation and you can be trained in a DNC, you can be trained in labiaplasty. And whether or not you choose to do it in your practice is completely separate, but at least you understand why, you can have a conversation about it, and you can refer to colleagues who have the surgical training and experience and who want to do this kind of procedure. Not Just like not everybody wants to do hysterectomies and some only want to do robotics, so you can choose, but it should be part of the menu of what we're learning. And so one of my goals before I retire is to get this into the residency programs. And I had the honor at the end of April to be invited to the very first grand rounds at a medical school residency program to talk about labiaplasty. And you know, the E-module was a foot in the door. The first grand rounds is another little foot in the door. And really, really slowly, the mountain is starting to move. And if I can get into more grand rounds and present to more faculty and residents and medical students and get them to put the pressure on ACOG to include this information because now they realize the importance of having this as part of their education, then that will also help open the door some more. So it's a huge task and I know I'm just one little piece of the puzzle and one little pebble thrown into the pond, but I'm hoping to make enough waves. And they say it takes 17 years to affect change. I've been trying for 15 now. I've got two more years to go. But the goal is to change the way our training is so it will trickle down so women will have better trained doctors who will be able to offer them what they really need. So that's my end goal. And um, women need to ask how many labiaplasties the surgeon has done. Okay, it's important to see before and after pictures. What's a good number? Hundreds. 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 Not like 200 or 700? 200, 300, 400. The first 100 you're learning on. Okay. I've done over 800. I right. can tell you the first 100 you're learning on. All the anatomy is different. People's bodies respond differently. Tissue contracts. You think you left enough and all of a sudden it's not as much as you thought. You know, you have to learn the little tricks and tips to make it come out. And you have to be meticulous and you have to have an eye for art. Mm -hmm. Because this is an artistic thing. This is, you want a symmetry. You know, although nature isn't 100% symmetric, we want it to be as close as possible. So, you know, when you want things to be connected properly, if they're having a hood reduction and a labia, the transition from the upper to the lower part has to be smooth. And many women will, they'll, the surgeons will not do the clitoral hood and just do the labia, and suddenly they have a top-heavy appearance. Or they'll take too much off the hood and not connect the top and the bottom properly and they have pieces of tissue that are just sticking out and looks very unattractive and is certainly not the aesthetic look they were thinking they were going to get. Or somebody who doesn't know about how to make them as even as possible and then they get one side that has no tissue and one side that has a flap. It's really hard to recreate a flap and very few people are taught how to do flap uh, transpositions to recreate an edge. That's a very difficult surgery. So you want to know what their complication rate is, what complications they've dealt with, and how do they deal with it, and how accessible they are. I mean, every patient that comes to me for a consult gets my cell phone number at the consult. So if they have questions during the whole process of trying to figure out if they're gonna come to me for a procedure, they can call me and text me anytime. I'm available. Wow. After surgery, I call them the day of their surgery to check on them. I see them the next morning to show them how everything looks. And then my staff and I call every two weeks for four week, for eight weeks, so four times over eight weeks, to check on them. We see them at two weeks, we see them at eight weeks, and I always joke and say I'll be like their second mom for the next year. Mm -hmm. Because basically that's what I'm there for. Any little thing they have concerns about, the whole process, I am there for them. And I don't know that a lot of surgeons have that attitude or that accessibility. And that's really important. So they want to know how accessible is their surgeon going to be post-op? Will they be able to call them directly if they have a question or a concern? You know, how soon could they be seen if there was an emergency? You know? So those are the kinds of things you want to ask. But definitely knowing the experience, and I would always recommend get more than one opinion. Just, I've had women go to their OBGYNs who they've trusted and known their whole lives, and their OBGYN says, well, while we're doing your hysterectomy, I can do your labia. And they come out with a botched labiaplasty. The hysterectomy was fine. Mm. 
okay? But they trusted their doctor. It's someone they knew. And so they thought this person could do it for them. Mm -hmm. You know, you also have to make sure that when you're signing a consent form, that you're consenting for a particular kind of procedure. The clitoral hood reduction can be on the sides or in the middle, so central or lateral. Um, you also, for the labiaplasty, that you're having a tapered look or you're having a wedge done, you know, or you don't want any tissue left, and that needs to be very specific because if you end up with no tissue when you wanted an edge, you may not be happy with that result. Now, you might be, which is great if you are, but if you're not, then you have this to discuss with your surgeon. How mm -hmm. can this be helped? How can it be improved? So those are the things. And then post-op care, you know, how uh, not just accessible on the phone, but how available, right. you know. Um, so that would be the main things for me. Seeing pictures, if there's patients that will talk to mm -hmm. other patients or if there's reviews that can be seen, those are also really good things for uh, women who are seeking a physician to be looking at reviews. Like I'm on realself.com. That's the number one website women go to for questions related to cosmetic and plastic surgery. You can put in any doctor's name, any procedure, any state, and it will find, and each physician has a profile. We are sent questions every day, so I've answered 500 plus questions on there so you can see if questions you have have been answered already before and after pictures are posted and patient reviews are posted. So it's a really good resource for women looking for a specific doctor and who's seen them before and what kind of comments are out there. So that's a really good resource um, and I would recommend that site. And then, you know, just Googling the physician and I always will let my patients talk to other women, you know, they first name and I'll get a number and pass it on and we, we try That's to do helpful. it discreetly, but it is helpful mm -hmm. and women want reassurance that somebody else has been through this and it was a good experience, you know. Um, my reviews are very good and I, I send out evaluations, I want patients to give me feedback and all feedback is welcome because I look at my practice as a work in progress. You know, nobody's perfect right. and we're constantly evolving and, and so it's important that when women give me feedback on how things are going or how my office is being run or an interaction, I, I address that seriously and I, I really want my patients to have the best experience both with just customer service and with their um, surgical care as well. The way that you operate your practice is unique and most doctors don't, I don't think, give that close attention to their patients. So it's when you hear of someone who, who has a practice like you, it's really special. And um, if, if only every doctor was that way, you know, healthcare would be different. But you know, my practice has evolved. I used yeah. to be an insurance-based right. practice. And once I started doing labiaplasty and hood reduction and even tightening for sexual function, there's no CPT codes for these things. Yeah. And so then I was between a rock and a hard place. You can't charge somebody mm -hmm. um, cash if it's an insurance contracted procedure. And so I just stopped with insurance altogether, mm -hmm. which is very unusual in this day and age. Mm -hmm. But I'm strictly a cash-based practice, and my consults are two hours long. I am not dictated by time. Yeah. I don't have 30 patients a day in my practice, and I don't want 30 patients a day because I can't give the kind of care I want to give to that many people in a day. It takes time, and I want to make sure that that time is given. Women deserve the time. They need to be educated properly. And if I can do nothing else but educate someone I mean I do go through a pelvic model I go mm -hmm. through before and after pictures I give questionnaires on sexual function and how they perceive their bodies and how they work before I ever see the patient because I want to know before they walk in the door what issues to focus on and what their main concerns are and they might not want to say it out loud but they might be more willing to write it on paper and so I can get an idea using these different statistically significant and validated questionnaires and when I give them before and then I will give them after treatment then I can measure the success of the surgery or the non-surgical treatment that patients have had. And that's really important because you want to know, have you resolved all the issues? Are there still residual things that haven't been addressed? And then where do we go from here? Um, so I am blessed that I have been able to survive as a cash-based physician and change my practice in a way that really does benefit women. But that is how I can afford to be the kind of educator that I am because I had to transition. Okay, I really feel like insurance-based physicians are locked in just by the whole system. Their time is limited per patient. 
if you have more than one problem, you have to get a copay, you have to get another referral. I mean, I want to address all the issues when you're sitting in front of me in that hour to two hours of time, from head to toe, from all the medical stuff you have, the concerns you may have about your partner, or about feeling good about your sexuality, or hormone issues, or incontinence issues, all of those things get addressed. And everything, I make a plan, and whatever I can help with, I will, and what I can't, I will find someone who will. So, but I am blessed because of the kind of practice I have, but I had to change it, and it is like jumping off the diving board into a swimming pool mm -hmm. when you change your insurance-based practice, which guarantees you patients every single day, to a cash-based practice where there's absolutely no guarantee that someone's gonna walk in the door. It is kind of scary. Um, and I've managed to survive for 15 years, which is huge. Amazing. Um, but to me, and of course my husband would disagree with me because he's really a businessman and his goal is money, money, money. My goal is helping women as much as I can and hopefully the money will follow, you know? That's not my primary end goal. My primary end goal is giving the best possible care that I can while I am here on this earth and doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And you know, I believe it, you know, I basically, we deal with it one woman at a time. We address things one woman at a time. Um, it's a lot easier one person at a time than it is to try and change everything at once, you know? And so that's kind of my, approach, comfort, function, and appearance, and sensitive, individual, customized care. Mm -hmm. And that's really how, unfortunately, medicine- Doesn't get better than that. <laughs> it's, it's been my goal to practice this way, and I feel good every single day about how I take care of women because of that. Mm -hmm. And like I said, even if they just come for the consult and they don't come back, they've left with knowledge that will still help them make good choices on lots of different levels, and I feel like I've done my job. Can you explain what some of the risks or complications could be uh, with a labiaplasty? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anytime. And may also, like, who wouldn't be an ideal candidate? Well, and I, somebody who's doing it for the wrong reasons. Right. Okay. Number one, um, you know, if they're doing it for their partner, mm -hmm. that's the wrong reasons. And I wouldn't operate on somebody who came in and had a controlling partner sitting next to them who answered all their questions. You know, I'd be concerned and red flags are raised. And so I, I try to be cautious when I evaluate somebody who may have a body dysmorphic disorder already in place. And so you want to get a, an idea of somebody is, um, you know, uh, obsessing mm -hmm. about their body parts, if they have had multiple different, you know, multiple surgeries over time. And you have to listen to them and kind of assess. Um, but somebody who has a body dysmorphic disorder, I would absolutely have a therapist involved. Somebody who's had rape or trauma, sexual abuse, I would do a labiaplasty on, but again, I would make sure that they have a therapist because sometimes PTSD can be triggered by surgery, even though you might be doing it to erase a memory, to change the look. All of those are valid reasons, but we don't always know how our psyche can handle that. And I just would hate for somebody to have a reaction and not have the support. So in that regard, I would make sure that there was emotional support for that person, not just family, but a, a therapist of some sort, because that's so important. And mm -hmm. women don't give themselves um, enough support. We do so much for so many people in our lives, and we're always last on our own lists. And so I really believe that we should put ourselves first, take the best care of ourselves, and then we can take better care of the people around us. But we have, women don't prioritize themselves. And it's really important that we do and recognize our self-worth and, and that we need to stand up for ourselves to get the care we need, and when something hasn't been done right, okay? I mean, I had a woman call me crying. She left me a two and a half minute message crying on my phone. I'd never met her before. She got my cell phone online and she had paid money to have a procedure that was coming up in two weeks and she did not like how the office had talked to her, had scheduled things, and she wanted to cancel her surgery and they were giving her a hard time. So I called her. And one of the things she said is she was scared for her life. Okay, when someone says that, you know, that tugs up my heartstrings. I can't not call you back if you're going to say something like that on my phone. So I called her back. We had a conversation, and I basically told her what she needed to say to get her money back. And she did. What did she say? Well, you know, the, the basic thing is it is unethical for a doctor to take your money 
you know, yes, we have paperwork that will have you signed after a certain point. You know, you might put down a deposit and the deposit is non-refundable, but everything else that you put down, you should be getting back. And so I told her that. I said, you need to say that this is not ethical. And, you know, I don't ever like to put doctors under a microscope and point fingers at people, but the medical board does not look look lightly or take it lightly when doctors are unethical mm -hmm. and will take money from patients without providing a service. And so I just told her, I said, you just tell them it's unethical and the medical board would certainly not like that and she got her money back. But the thing is she wouldn't have known what to say otherwise. Right. And so we women don't know how to advocate for themselves. And you know, if you're not comfortable with a surgeon, you get your money back, you go somewhere else, you know. Um, this is not urgent, this is elective surgery. And mm -hmm. so there isn't a rush and no woman should feel pushed into doing it because they put down money or because the doctor's office says, oh, well, we can get you in. And they're not quite there yet. You know, like I said, always get a second opinion. I think it's really important, sometimes a third opinion. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you don't have, to, you may not like what somebody tells you. So I just want women to not stop looking for their answers and not settle for something, okay? You wanna take the best care of yourself, so you really wanna research and make sure you're getting a, a surgeon who is experienced and who's gonna give you the results you're looking for. And going, backtracking again for a second, so what are some of the complications or risks that are associated with okay. the labiaplasty? Anytime you have surgery, there's mm -hmm. a risk for bleeding, right. there's a risk for infection, there's a risk for having pain or altered sensation. Now in my practice, I haven't had anybody lose sensation, mm -hmm. but if a physician cuts a nerve around the clitoris, somebody could lose sensation. So you have to know your anatomy. Um, the number one complication in the literature related to labiaplasty is asymmetry is not having the results come out symmetric. And over 50% of the women in the literature left it because it wasn't a big asymmetry, mm -hmm. it was a little bit. And you know, nature is what it is. And we have one hand bigger than the other, one breast bigger than the other, one ear is different, one right. foot is different. So if one labia is slightly different, but it's significantly reduced and you're comfortable, then there's no reason to do any kind of revision mm -hmm. or touch up surgery. In my practice, between six months and a year after a procedure, if a patient has a bump or a spot they're not happy with, or they had a little scar overgrowth, and they want it fixed, I will do a no charge revision in my office. Mm -hmm. Because I want them to look at their bottoms every day and be happy with what they see. Yeah, You know, if you paid for it, then you should <laughs> get what you're looking for to the best that you can. So, so those are the main ones. Hematoma can happen with the wedges, and the wedges have an increased risk of edge separation because you have two pieces of tissue that are coming back together and a blood supply has to reform because visualize this, you take a piece out of the middle and you tack the edge down. So then a blood supply has to reconnect and sometimes it doesn't always. And so it might look good for the first six to eight weeks and then by three months there's a little hole and by 12 you know, months there's a bigger hole or the edge may separate and then they have to have a second procedure. So the wedges do have a slightly higher, probably about a 7% complication rate. With the edge trimming, it's the asymmetry. That's the number one issue. But, you know, in an experienced surgeon's hands, these risks are extremely small and they shouldn't happen. And have you ever had a patient with like clitoral pain or any of those I've had related issues? I know my physical therapists, like we were talking about this previously, and they said that they've seen that. But then again, any surgery can cause pain. So, you know, that's Absolutely. what they've seen. But I'm, I was just curious to ask you your opinion on that. Yes, I thank goodness in my practice mm -hmm. haven't had any patients that have had clitoral pain right. after surgery. Right. Um, I had one patient after labiaplasty just have a lot of pain, mm -hmm. post-surgical pain, and I have a wonderful numbing cream I applied and that took care of it. But all the drugs they gave her in the surgical center were affecting her brain but not really affecting the, the skin. And so right. topical was really what she needed and it made all the difference in the world. Um, so, uh, but I've not had many with extreme pain. This is one person and yeah. over 800 that yeah. had pain to that degree. So it was recent and a surprise to me. Um, but the majority of women come out of labiaplasty and it's relatively comfortable. I have techniques to help with comfort care as well. Um, 
and um, they do very well. Fast recovery, fast healing. It seems that way, which is crazy because it's such a sensitive part of the body. It is true, but mm -hmm. by four weeks, all the edges are healed, and by six to eight weeks, you can resume everything, all of your normal activity. Some surgeons will let the patients become sexually active between four and six weeks, but I'm a little more conservative because there's fresh nerve endings there, right. you know, and I just err on the side of caution. So I say six to eight weeks, mm -hmm. and most of my patients come back and see me at six so I can see how well they're healed and if they're non-tender they get the good to go mm -hmm. everything Wow and do you work with pelvic floor physical therapists do you send patients to pelvic floor PT after surgery um, what does that look like in your practice okay so pelvic floor therapists are very useful for the postpartum female right primarily um, but any woman with a pelvic floor issue certainly they can be helpful Childbirth causes three main areas of damage, bladder, bowel, and sexual function can be impacted. And so when women come to me, I'll do a pelvic exam and evaluate their pelvic relaxation, but I also have some really amazing specific questionnaires that help focus on bowel function issues, hemorrhoids, constipation, do they have to manually assist? I mean, think about when you have a baby. The birth canal is an elastic tube and it can stretch kind of like stockings think of stockings when you first take them out of the package and after you've worn them all day long they change significantly mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter how much you wash them after mm -hmm. you've worn them they never shrink back to what they look like when they came out of the bag it's the same thing with the birth canal the elastic and the the collagen tissues have been stretched and everything bounces back a little bit to some degree and depending on your genetics and your tissue elasticity some come back more than others. And I always joke, it could be the first kid, it could be the fifth kid. They all change us to some degree. It's to what, when it reaches a point where quality of life is affected, that's when you wanna do something about it. So pelvic floor therapy can be a non-invasive first line choice, or it can be an adjunct to surgery. If you've got a lot of damage to the pelvic floor, it really needs to be reestablished. The muscles need to be put back before physical therapy is gonna be effective. And I make a joke, but you know, if you take a toilet paper roll and you take a scissor and you cut it all the way from one end to the other, and then you pull it apart, that's what the birth canal looks like after delivery. It's no longer connected. The tube is not a unit anymore. So when they say squeeze your muscles, it's a joke. It's a lie. It is misinformation. You cannot squeeze your muscles effectively because the muscles have been stretched apart. And so women will come to me telling me they have been doing Kegel exercises for a decade and nothing has happened. And I think what a waste of good energy that is, okay? Because after three months, if something doesn't start to improve, then you should be reevaluated. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so pelvic floor therapy definitely has a place. I know some surgeons, everybody goes there, but it's not appropriate for labiaplasty patients. Right. It wouldn't be appropriate for a hymenoplasty patient or a mons liposuction patient, you know. But the ones that have pelvic floor issues, incontinence, bowel function issues, and sexual function issues, which include reduced sensation for one or both partners, fallout due to the weak muscles at the vaginal opening, and air that moves in and out causing gas-like noises which can be embarrassing and inhibit a woman from wanting to have sex. Mm -hmm. Also, tampons may not stay in the way they used to because that stretch of the back vaginal wall allows the rectum to push up into the vagina and it pushes your tampons down and out. And so some women may have to wear a liner in addition or wear two or some stop wearing tampons, which if you're used to doing wearing them and now you don't, it's not as clean and comfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. All of these areas can be impacted. And pelvic floor therapy is definitely a good adjunct to surgery or even to radiofrequency, which is another way non-surgically to help with the pelvic floor and issues related to childbirth. Which is what I want to talk about next. Perfect segue, thank you. <laughs> um, so radiofrequency is another treatment that you specialize in and do often in your practice. So 
now do you want to talk a little bit about what radio frequency is and and who it would be necessary for yes so first let me give a tiny little intro it may not be so tiny but i'll do my best (laughs) on vaginal rejuvenation okay because that's a term that's out there vaginal rejuvenation is a broad term that encompasses surgical and non-surgical options to restore support to the vagina and enhance sexual function if you're going to just do it for sexual function, then insurance isn't going to consider anything. But you, when you have damage to the pelvic floor and surgical support of the bladder and rectum are needed, those are incorporated into a vaginal rejuvenation procedure because you are supporting and then you're tightening the vagina. So you're doing both things in this regard. Um, also pulling muscles back together at the opening to help resupport the opening. Um, so those are things that are involved in the surgical part. The non-surgical options can include radiofrequency, can include the laser. Um, there's different lasers out there. The end goal of both radiofrequency and lasers is the same, to increase blood flow, to stimulate collagen and elastin production, to help tighten and support, and um, to increase lubrication. So the end goals are the same. The difference between lasers and radiofrequency is that lasers destroy cells to rejuvenate them, and radiofrequency stimulates cells. So it's a non-ablative way of treating. So I like the less destructive mode myself. And I've treated over 135 women with radiofrequency. So as a non-surgical option to treat issues related to childbirth, there's five things radiofrequency helps with. Stress urinary incontinence, which is the leakage of urine with coughing, sneezing, bending, and lifting. So women who can't jump on a trampoline or are running down the street about to sneeze and they have to stop and cross their legs, this can help with that. This also helps with the urge incontinence where you feel like you have to go all the time. It can calm that feeling down. It helps with dryness causing painful sex. It helps with reduced orgasmic intensity and it helps with reduced sensation. Those are the five functional things that radiofrequency does. Now, how does it do it? The mode of action, number one, it causes increased blood flow. It regenerates nerves and blood vessels, so that's how it helps with improving sensation. It stimulates protein productions in the cells which draws moisture in so it helps with painful sex. So women can have painful sex for many different reasons but one is perimenopause where you have reduced hormones and reduced lubrication production but it can also be with high progesterone contraceptives or depo only because those things lower your estrogen production which affects your lubrication production so this can help with that women who have breast cancer and can't use hormone replacement therapy this is an excellent option for those women it will help with lubrication it can also help with sensation it might help with incontinence issues so this can help with all of those it also helps with increasing sensation by tightening. It stimulates collagen production as well as um, uh, shrinks the existing collagen. So all these different mechanisms of action help with the problems. And so it's great to have a non-surgical option available to women that can help with all of those things. But with radiofrequency, like most of these procedures, it's the body's response that's going to dictate how good those results are and every body is different and so an older woman might need collagen supplements to help with that collagen stimulation whereas somebody in their 30s and 40s may not need anything else but I've treated over 135 women using radiofrequency and I've had excellent results in improving incontinence, dryness and making it look better and several women, more than several, have had uh, orgasmic intensity improve significantly, and it helps with pelvic pain. I've had several women who've had scarring in their vaginas from removal of mesh, and have had years of pain, and the radiofrequency seems to be helpful in making it go away. And I can't explain it. I've had two specific patients, both who've had mesh removed, and both whose pain has improved significantly and resolved with radiofrequency. So there's another place for it as well, and we'll see what its uses in the future will become. Is there similarly to uh, the question that I had about labiaplasties, but is there a special way that that doctors are trained to do radiofrequency and are there certain questions that a patient should ask before they use a specific doctor for radiofrequency? Yes, so it's important to know. Now, first of all, let me just say Mm -hmm. that a lot of 
places are offering radio frequency that aren't um, physician run. So med spas, um, and I'm not sure that an aesthetician would know when they, to do a pelvic exam and be able to identify pelvic relaxation and whether or not they can determine if they're a surgical candidate or a non-surgical candidate right. and what kind of results to help them expect to get. So I think that that's a problem. I also know that these machines end up in the hands of physicians that are not OBGYNs or urogynecologists. And a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist who, again, isn't comfortable with pelvic anatomy, that doesn't routinely work in that area, is offering a treatment. Many times it's because they had the machine and they were using it for the face treatment mode, which was called Thermi Smooth, specific to this particular company. Then they came out with the handpiece for downstairs and they went and offered it to all the doctors that had the Thermi Smooth. So now they have an additional mode of revenue in their practice. Oh. But is it being provided by an appropriate provider. And so I kind of question that because mm -hmm. I think that someone who isn't familiar with pelvic anatomy and who can't offer other options if it's not successful, then they might be wasting their money going to those people. And sometimes they'll try and undersell. And it's like, first of all, you want to make sure it's the doctor doing it, not a tech. I do all my procedures myself. I don't have anybody else in my office in there with me, I address and take care of the patient myself. So they get me all to themselves, 25 minute treatment, and we converse or they rest or they text or you know whatever is comfortable for the patient. But they get me. The other thing is, I've had women call the office, we just want a treatment, we don't want a consult. Well, anybody who's gonna just offer a procedure without evaluating the appropriateness of the procedure, well, that's just someone who's taking their money. That's not, so you wanna be careful with who you go to. You wanna make sure that they're experienced in pelvic anatomy and that they can offer you more than one solution if Thermiva or radiofrequency isn't the right thing for you or if there's more relaxation there. You know, it's good to know there's a lot of tools in the toolbox and you wanna know what else they can offer you. Mm -hmm. So for pelvic relaxation, not only is there radiofrequency, not only is there lasers, there's a new technology called Mcella. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to market or advertise for Mcella, but it's really interesting. They use magnetic resonance imaging technology to use the magnets to stimulate the muscles of the pelvic floor to contract 11,000 times in 28 minutes. It super kegels you. But there's not a lot of long-term data on it. It's a new technology that's been applied downstairs and it hasn't been around that long to know five-year data or three-year data. It's just been out for the last year. And it's a very interesting concept because it might help some women avoid surgery by tightening up their pelvic floor. But I look at it as kind of almost contradictory because if your muscles aren't connected, how are you able to exercise them effectively to get good improvement? So I'm not sure yet personally how well that's gonna work in the long term, but I think that when you have different modalities, you might be able to combine them together and get really good results and, and not just with one of them alone. So there's another option for women, platelet-rich plasma, which goes by the trademark name of the O-Shot. Now, my experience is there is no specific spot in the vagina that you should have injected. It hasn't been identified yet. Now, there has been something identified in June of, of 2012. The, an article was published by Professor Ostrinsky, who discovered a neurovascular structure in the vagina that had never been identified before. Is this the pacemaker of orgasms? We don't know yet. It's too soon to tell. There haven't been scientific studies on live patients to see if we stimulate this area versus this area. I mean, that's kind of intimate. Uh, testing required for that, but it needs to be done in order to know for sure what this is. But in the past, the G-shot has been offered from California to inject in the G-spot. Well, they haven't identified a specific spot, so injecting randomly into the vagina may not be a good thing, but the second point is, if it's a neurovascular structure, injecting collagen is gonna clog it up and may desensitize it. Mm -hmm. Now, platelet-rich plasma, which comes from you, mm -hmm. spun down, growth factors concentrated and re-injected into an area where there may be dysfunction might be helpful. And that's future 
experiment needing to be done. These studies need to be done before we can really be sure if injecting anything into the vagina is good. Women are getting PRP injected into their clitoral area as the O shot to help with orgasms. I've had very mixed responses in women. Some get a really good response, some eh. And so I like to use it for wound healing. I like to use it to help with treating stress incontinence. I like to help with pelvic pain. It can help, it can be injected into a spasming muscle and it can reduce vaginismus. Botox has been used for that. So PRP might be useful for that. So there are there right. are a I lot had of Botox in my pelvic floor muscles. And how did it help? It really helped. There you go. Yeah. So there, see, there are other tools in the toolbox. So right. I just kind of wanted to. I know I just painted a big picture and brought no, up a whole bunch really of other things, but we have a lot of tools. But a, you want to make sure you go to somebody who knows about all the tools. Right and who have access to the tools. And you know, if you really aren't wanting surgery, definitely try some of these non-surgical options first because in combination they may work well or well enough to keep you from having surgery. But if they don't work the way you want, then you want to find the right surgeon. I know women are scared of surgery, but the fact is it can be life-changing in a positive way. Yeah. And the most common comment women make to me when I ask on their evaluation form, what would you do differently? They would have done it sooner had they known. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important women know what their options are so they can explore for themselves what's going to be best for them. Is radiofrequency painful? It is not, actually. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you how the treatment yeah. <laughs> works. There's a little wand, and mm -hmm. I mean little. It's the, the size of my finger, but a little twice as long. There's a little metal plate behind one of uh, the backside, and that's where the heat comes from. It gets lubricated and inserted into the vagina, and I gently move it back and forth to distribute the heat along the walls of the vagina. It's like ironing, except it never gets really hot. The heat is pulsated, and it's preset temperature, so it never goes over the temperature it's set for. My communication, the whole time the procedure is occurring with the patient, is it comfortable? Is it too hot? Is there enough lubrication? And I make sure that they're comfortable. Some women fall asleep during this <laughs> procedure. I mean, it's like a warm massage, right. okay? Um, and some are a little anxious the first 10 seconds until they go, oh, that's all this is, you know? And so it's a 13-minute in the vagina treatment. It treats all four walls for three minutes and takes one to warm up to the temperature. And then on the outside, on the majara, it stimulates collagen production and actually tightens it up and makes it look more taut and it's very impressive. All the women leave feeling like something's been done because there's a visual change on the outside. The collagen is shrunk by the heat and the collagen production switch is now flipped on so over the next two weeks, collagen is going to be made and it will help make it tighter. Three treatments are recommended. This is fascinating. And it works great. If mm -hmm. I hadn't been there the first, I mean, when I did my very first patient and I saw the huge change visually, I was totally convinced. And what was even funnier is when she came back a month later for treatment number two, she said, by the way, my bladder's working a lot better. And I said, you didn't tell me you had any issues. She said, you know, my whole life I've had the urge to go and my whole family does. And I didn't think, it, I thought it was normal. And now it was gone. I was like so happy because I didn't even plant the seed that this treated her issues and she didn't even realize she had an issue. That made me very happy. It convinced me this was a really good tool and that it has a place. Wow may not work for everybody, may not work for all the issues. If you come in with five things, it may treat three of them really well and not the other two as well. And then sometimes a fourth treatment is recommended. Three treatments a month apart are recommended. Each one builds on the one before. So just doing one alone, I don't recommend. It's not going to be enough. It might help for the short term, but it's not going to be mm -hmm. enough. And these treatments, the three of them combined, usually will last one to two years. And then you come back for one maintenance treatment, not another series of three. And so if that keeps your bladder symptoms at bay and you don't need a sling or you don't need drugs to calm down an overactive bladder, well, that's a good thing. If it helps with your dryness causing painful sex and you don't need estrogen, you can do this indefinitely. Okay, so there's definitely a mm -hmm. place for radiofrequency. Non-surgical options are wonderful and they're great, but like all these other cosmetic kinds of things, they're not permanent. And that's the biggest drawback, is they're not permanent. But if you have a good relationship with your doctor and you get good results, then there's no reason why you can't just continue right. doing this for yourself. And are there any risks associated with radiofrequency? Well, it's interesting that you say that. I have not seen a lot of 
problems using radio frequency. They have a, the list is small. It's like mm -hmm. ten things. So um, someone that has pelvic pain and we don't know why, we obviously want to explore why they're having pelvic right. pain. Someone who has an active STD, sexually transmitted disease, or an active urinary tract infection, we want to treat those first. Mm -hmm. Anybody who I do an exam on that has yeast, I will treat the yeast first because the radio frequency will warm the vagina up and well guess what? It's going to encourage growth of the yeast so we don't want to cause a flaming yeast infection. So I'll treat with a diflucan by mouth and then have them come in a few days later and then boom we treat and it's fine. I had one person who had a yeast flare up and she called me and said my vagina's on fire and after that I'm like I'm treating everybody. Right. Who wants that? That's right. not a good way for you to how can we say oh it was it was a really great experience but now my vagina's on fire. Yeah. No so we don't want that. So that's what I learned and sometimes we do learn as we go. Totally. Um, I had one patient who had recurrent bladder infections and she got a bladder infection after her second treatment. Whether it was because she was prone to them or whether the thermiva, the radio frequency, the wand might have pushed a little bacteria up the urethra. And one person and 135 one mm -hmm. time. So it's not common. Mm -hmm. um, I have had one person get an overstimulated bladder and the urologist said she had an underlying condition. because. Radio frequency is supposed to calm it down. So it was unusual for her, somebody, to have that kind of response. Right. Um, but that's really it. There's no risk of getting burned. I mean, you'd have to hold the wand in one place without moving it for a period of time to cause a burn. Mm -hmm. And it's only meant to be constantly used in motion. So if somebody's not holding it right and doing it right, well, there's your risk. It's the, it's the user's fault, right. not anything the patient did. They say bladder and rectal entry are risks, but I can't imagine unless you're like Freddy Krueger going, you know, trying to stab the patient with the wand, how are you going to get it into the bladder? It just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it's no. just the improper use. Okay. Me now, neither. I'm now, not a doctor, but me neither. Now, there, there are some studies now uh, testing it for fecal incontinence. So we can make a joke and say, but the reality is that they might be using it inside the rectum to help the anus sphincter strengthen. And I don't know too much about that data yet, but I do know that they are looking at it for fecal incontinence. So it may have a role there. But in its vaginal treatment use, there shouldn't be any entry into the rectum, okay? Um, so really minimal minimal stuff. A little pink on the outside afterwards, you know, um, occasional feeling of the heat, but they're really minimal. The most, I would say the biggest risk is that it doesn't meet your expectations. Right. Okay. And we can't predict that in advance because we don't know how your body's going to respond. And, and that's the same with anything you do. And that's, but it's how Whether it's, it's a medication or a procedure or literally anything that is how it's presented to the patient uh -huh. you want to make sure that they understand that everything may resolve or some things may and they may not all or it may not be enough but to give it the three treatments a chance if you're going to commit to it give the three treatments a chance and if it doesn't meet their expectations and they end up having surgery i will give a break on price for surgery because they've already come to me for one procedure to try and fix a problem so i want to i try and work with everybody in that regard but you know, appropriate expectations are so important in anything, like you said. Thank you. And last but not least, is there any other piece of advice that you have or want to give to everyone listening in regards to the work you do and everything else that we've talked about today? Thank you for giving me the opportunity to say something. I think really the most important thing is for women to love themselves, care about themselves, and put themselves first, and take the best care. You know, do your homework. Really do your homework. Speak to the doctor. I will do a phone consult with anybody who wants to talk to me before they come in so they can see if I'm somebody they want to talk to. You know, I think that's really important. Look online, get reviews, ask lots of questions, get more than one opinion, okay? It's your body and you wanna make the best choices. So getting as much information as possible is my biggest recommendation. And don't settle, okay? Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I would say. And know that there are doctors that can help. And don't stop looking until you find them. You know, many women will give up and don't feel up. hopeless and don't give up. Know mm -hmm. that there are people out there that can help you. And if somebody comes to me and I can't help them, I'll do everything I can to find somebody who can. And I think that's the kind of support network we should have for women. Thank you for doing this work. It's amazing, and and I hope that I I'm very confident that you will achieve your goal in two years, which will be 17 years of 
having ACOG pass uh, or add add to their their guidelines so that more gynecologists are able to do the the procedures that you do because it clearly uh, is necessary for so many women. Um, and where can people contact you? Um, I am in San Antonio, Texas. I have a very informative web website. It's www.cosmeticgyn.net. Um, I'm also on realself.com, so people can look me up to read about my reviews and see my work. I have a TED Talk on YouTube called Female Anatomy 101, which just is very basic, but it's fun, and it can be anyone in the family can listen to it and learn, um, especially our male partners and counterparts and friends who think they know about women and who really don't know as much as they think. <laughs> um, you can reach me at my office at 210-615-6646 and info at cosmeticgyn.net is where you can write us with your questions and we're happy to answer them and get you scheduled if you want to come and see me. <laughs> Thank you again. This was by far one of the most interesting and powerful episodes that I've done so far. So I really I'm glad that we were able to make this work. I'm glad that we we're both in New York on the same weekend. And to everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. Please share your thoughts, comments, and questions about this episode or any other episode at info at the women's pelvic health podcast.com. I would love to hear from you. And as always, please rate and review the podcast in the iTunes store. I wish all of you health, healing, and happiness.